Three, two, one, welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step life, now with less dogma and more bite. Last week, we introduced you to Richard Glenn Lett and his one-man show, Sober But Never Clean. We're talking to Richard later in this show. But first, Jack Grisham. From the 1970s LA punk rock scene came TSOL. And frontman Jack has a new book, A Principle of Recovery. We'll be playing some TSOL. We'll be talking to Jack about his new book, which is a strong buy at the Rebellion Dogs bookstore. So we'll talk to Jack about A Principle of Recovery. We'll have some music. We'll have some comedy. We'll close with Richard talking about Sober But Never Clean. So all I have to do is get out of the way and let you get on with the show. Let's do it. Hey, this is Jack Grisham, author of A Principle of Recovery and An American Demon, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Jack, uh, welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio. It's great to have you. I loved your book, by the way, just to uh, spoil the end of it. And uh, (laughs) Thank you very much. I mean, our uh, radio tagline is more bite, less dogma. Right. And, and why can't anybody tell uh, the recovery story? I mean, uh, why uh, canonize it, our founders and why reify the message when it's as true in today's language as it ever was? It wasn't created in 1939. It was borrowed from truths that go back quite a ways, didn't it? You bet. And I'll tell you, one of the best lessons I learned about that, because I used to be like Bert Stretch. A quick stretch, I was a heavy dogma guy. Like, I was on it, and, you know, I'd judge you and tear apart this. If you weren't doing it right, by the book, line by line, exactly as said, I was on you. And then I basically had, and I'm not affiliated with any kind of religious order or whatever, but I had a Jesuit brother for, like, a spiritual advisor or whatever. we just talk. And one time I said, hey, what do you think the best translation of something is? And he looked at me, and he shook his head. And he said, wow, he goes, Jack, it's such a shame that you're that hung up on the words. <laughs> and, and what he was basically saying to me is, walk away from that. Let's look below what's being said. Let's delve into this instead of just worrying about this one little word, this one line. Let's really look at what we're talking about. Uh, I don't know if you ever met him, but uh, for a time being, uh, Reverend Ward Ewing was uh, Alcoholics Anonymous's uh, Class A non-alcoholic uh, chairman of the board. And he was a big fan of alcoholics, of course, as he would have had to been. And he had an expression that experience trumps explanation. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to steal that. You can. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I stole it from him and I... Uh, and it's, uh, you know, call it fair use. Because the reality right. is we share, everyone shares the experience of addiction and everyone shares this experience of recovery. When we start explaining it, now we get caught up in each other's language. That really hit me too. It's like, how can I even explain what I've done? And so even in the book, I say, look, you're not going to understand any of this until you start doing it. You can't write this down. There's not a form to fill out. (laughs) Like, hey, man, this is a journey that you're going to have to just learn and experience as you go along. And there's no way around that. And not an intellectual process at all. 
Uh, not at all. Not you... at all. I mean, there are parts of it that are great to have a, to have an intellect. Yeah, I mean, they encourage that. They wanted us to think. They wanted to, us to expand our thinking, which is great, but it's not something you can think your way into without experiencing, if that makes any sense. Well, right. It, it's not thinking that is a problem. It's unhealthy thinking that's a problem. You bet. And that's the mistake. A lot of people, they'll just tell people, don't think, don't think. It's No, no, no. We're going to learn how to think. <laughs> Difference here. It's crazy. That's like if I was, you know, it's like I go to the gym, you know, I go down to the gym and I'm fat as hell and the trainer says, hey, you're fat. You need some help. Let me do your lifting for you. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, man. <laughs> a year later, he's in great shape. I'm still fat. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta learn how to think, and well, the sooner I can start doing that, the better. If I can call you someone in a uh, post big book thumper stage, yeah. <laughs> okay, so would you say there is anything in AA or in any of the twelve step programs that is either sacred or forbidden? I, I don't think any of it, and I don't even want to say that getting. Loaded or drunk is forbidden. Right. Because sometimes that, you know, that is such a huge part of the experience. You know, what I realized is I, I do this interview meeting on Saturday night, sort of, you know, like what you do here. And I ask people questions and I get into it. And I found out that the story is not so much in the surrender. The story is in the rebellion yeah. towards the surrender. Mm -hmm. The story's in the fight. So, so even when someone has to go out and drink or get loaded or whatever, that's all part of this journey. I, I mean, we learn compassion through that. We learn, you know, there's so much, you know, I, I don't think anything is sacred or forbidden in right. here. Although the one thing I will say is hindering someone else's growth or betrayal, we've got to realize that a lot of these issues that we're dealing with these people, these are hurt and they're injured people. And when someone comes to you in confidence, that that must be treated sacred. Other than that, hey, fuck them at it. <laughs> but, but to not betray a trust. Now, let me just go back a little bit because we started in the middle. You come from uh, the do-it-yourself punk rock uh, work ethic. Uh, do you bring that to publishing? I mean, you've, you've done some writing that's music-based. You've done some other writing you know, American Demon is kind of a, it's a memoir uh, of your, you know, sort of pre-recovery days. Uh, do you have the same sort of do-it-yourself work ethic or, you know, were you always sort of looking for a publishing deal, uh, looking to do well, it through the mainstream? The trouble with when you start going through the mainstream, then you get people and they start pulling the edge off things. Mm -hmm. You know, which in a way can be good maybe sometimes, but a lot, no. It's like, I don't want someone cut me edge off this. Like some of the language is a little dicey in a principle of recovery. And, you know, some people say, hey, you can't say the C word in here, guy. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know this is a spiritual book, man. You're dropping F-bombs in here, yeah. whatever. So sometimes, you know, it's good to have the distribution that a larger company brings you, but, but then it's also you start getting shaved down. And, and I, I, I really have a problem with that. Here's a passage. You're talking about uh, the do's and don'ts of sponsorship that might not have been in a uh, Penguin Random House uh, book. On page 60, you say, Now, I'm not going to swing into a tirade against robot-creating sponsorship here, but I will say this. 
If you blindly follow the orders of a sponsor, you're a stooge. However, in times of trouble, if you don't seek counsel, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> well, to put it bluntly. <laughs> well, that's the type of edge that they might say, can we maybe uh, find uh, another adjective? Right, but it works so well there. Yeah, it, it certainly does. And it's the way you would say it eyeball to eyeball with someone, right? Exactly, and that was the whole point. The whole point, the way I wrote that book, I wrote it really conversationally on purpose. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're just talking to me, and there's even parts in the book where all of a sudden someone else comes in and starts asking questions, like, well, who's this person? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody. So it's really written like you're just talking face-to-face. -face. And, and that issue on sponsorship, look, if, if we're sitting down and looking at it, Sponsorship is a beautiful thing to have a mentor, a guide, someone that's gone before you. Oh my God, that is so treasured and cherished and so beautiful. However, it's not a relationship where the sponsee is supposed to be serving the sponsor. The sponsor is serving the sponsee. Yeah. It's the opposite way around. And to learn how to think for yourself, but to realize when you have that moment to be able to sit with someone and say, hey, look, you know, this is what's going on. What do you think about that? Like when guys come to me and they want to talk, first of all, I ask them if they want me to just listen or they're looking for my opinion. Yeah. And if they're looking for my opinion, I base it on my experience. And then what I try to do is just see it from an outside viewpoint and try to give them the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Hey, I see you're going to do that. However, you know, your, my, your wife may have an issue with that or you'll wear it back <laughs> yeah. or whatever, just to kind of help them be as informed as possible before they make a decision. Yeah. But the decision always rests with them. Yeah. You give a, a couple of examples where you don't have time to check in with somebody else. You have to follow your gut feeling. Your story about the uh, woman and her son uh, traveling from Europe, that was a great right. example of just following your intuition with something, and it worked out. That's what we're supposed to do. See, it's so interesting if you look towards the big book. We're encouraged to do that. See, so many people operate on fear-based sobriety. It's fear. Oh, my God, that's how... I mean, I don't want to get political on it, but mm -hmm. this is why we've had so many problems in the United States after the 9-11 thing. So many liberties were taken away because they said, hey, if you don't give this up, this is going to happen again. Give it up. You know, in the program, this is done. Oh, if you make a bad decision, you're going to get loaded. If you do this, you're going to get loaded. You get in a bad relationship, you're going to get loaded. Boom, 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 and it's fear, 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 fear. And they pump this into people that maybe have just had a bad experience. Let's say they just totally got their ass kicked with booze and drugs. They come in here looking for help, and they're beaten down, beaten down, and somebody steps up and says, hey, if you don't want that to happen again, you better do this. And what it is, it's fear-based sobriety, and I don't buy into it. The original founders didn't either. They believed that if you made this decision, if you were aware and awake, that you had a problem, and after that, you're going to trust your instinct, and you're going to believe and act on faith that whatever thought you have is a thought that can be, you know, even if it goes bad, you can find a positive in it. We separate that from any mistake we make. Oh, yeah, I got in a bad relationship. It kicked my ass. I didn't get drunk. Yeah, got a bad job, kicked my ass, didn't get drunk. Yeah, did this, kicked my ass, didn't get drunk. Because it doesn't have anything to do with it. We have to separate one thing from another. So there's a, a passage I, I'd like you to read. 
It's um, okay. uh, 155, I think it is. It just, it, it really encapsulates a lot in a single paragraph. I, and I think this is what I'm talking about when people are supposedly carrying the message. So what's your message? Don't tell me that you're going to regurgitate some depth and weight from the book, because I'll see through that. Your message must be more than your words. Yes, I want to hear about freedom, love, and power. But I also want to look in your eyes and see the spark of those words manifested. I want to hear the language of the heart, and that involves a tone that flows beneath the sound of your voice, a tone you can't fake. I want your message to be in your actions, in the way you stand, offer assistance, and smile. When I see you, I want to see a painting splashed with life, not a print of your sponsor's or your grand sponsor's life. I want to see yours, with all its faults, imperfections, assets, glory, and uniqueness. Anyone can repeat a phrase, but a message is different. A message is a discrete unit of communication, individually separate and distinct. In other words, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one. Anyone who's got a chip on their shoulder or looking to disagree with you, serve it up to them, whether they're a secularist or, or one of our more religious members. Because... You talk of God, but you don't believe in a prayer-answering, sobriety-granting <laughs> deity. Uh, you, right. you speak of Jesus, although no one knows if you believe he's a myth, he's a son of God, just like you are or I am or anybody is, or whether that even matters to you. The goal of punk rock as, a, as an art form is to comfort the inflicted and to inflict the comfortable. You bet. Are you applying the same principle to your discussion no, of higher powers? I'm, I'm really not. See, I have friends that struggle with the God concept, and I'm an agnostic. Yeah. You know, and it's funny, because I've had guys tell me, I have never heard an agnostic quote the Bible as much as you do. <laughs> it's like, hey, look, guy, just because I don't believe in a deity doesn't mean that I don't have the intelligence to read a passage and see how it can apply. That, that, I used to get into this with my friends that are such, you know, this high intelligence rolling all over the place, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, you're not smart enough to see that you need help. Mm-hmm. How intelligent is that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're not smart enough to know that you don't have it. Now what are we talking about? You know, to be able to look at a teaching attributed to Christ and say, look, there's power in this statement. Hey, I don't care if Christ I don't even care if Christ exists. I don't care. I'm going to look at this sentence and see the power in it. And I'm going to use that. And I don't care where it came from. I don't care if it came from a Muslim or a Christian. I don't care if it came from an atheist, whatever the hell, a Wiccan or what. I don't care. If I look at the statement, is the statement true and can it be applied or is it not true? Yeah. It's almost like a mathematical equation. If an atheist says one plus one is two, and a a Bible thumbing Christian says one plus one is two, well, is are they wrong? Is one of them wrong? <laughs> I mean, what has it got? It doesn't have anything to do with the statement. Yeah. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Uh, when well, we separate I, all the crap. I agree a hundred percent. Joseph Campbell, someone I admire deeply, he. Uh, wrote a book about the world's history of myths. He talks about them with such 
respect. And, and you never know what he believes and what he doesn't believe because he treats every storytelling process and uh, every source with the same amount of dignity that he treats the, the one he grew up with. You were talking earlier about your high-on-their-own-intellect friends uh, worship at the altar of reason, but still that isn't sufficient for them to overcome addiction. No, there has to be some awakening. And this is the... I mean, I don't want to get too far into this, but this is what a lot of people, I think, don't realize in the recovery world and these people in these treatment homes and all this... We're really trying to get someone to wake up. Mm-hmm. That's that's what it is. You can go and treat them and give them a good meal and detox them and whatever the hell. But if there's not a basic change in their overall philosophy in life, they're going again. They're going to get loaded again. It's gonna. It's destined. It's going to happen unless there's some basic change, shift, whatever the hell it is. Some people call it a spiritual experience. Some people just call it just waking up, becoming aware, whatever. If that doesn't take place, these people are screwed. I found a rude awakening while working a pinch. <laughs> a lot of them are. Hey, <laughs> uh, man, I don't know. I don't know if I ever had any pleasant awakening. To tell you the truth. Now, I, if I've noticed anything in the difference of uh, the narrative, sort of the, uh, I'll call it the digital age. There, there was always this. Uh, distance between the author and the audience uh, that doesn't exist for bands and their fans anymore, and it it doesn't necessarily uh, exist between authors and their readers. You, in fact, offer your phone number (laughs) right (laughs) in the book. That really is my phone number. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that really is my phone number. Some people think it's not my number, Yeah, and then they call and it's, who is this? Oh my God, it's Jack. What you, you called me, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. That was the thing that I loved so much about punk rock. In the 1970s, there was this big division between the band and the fans or whatever. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. we are the band. We are, we are backstage. We are VIP. You are buying tickets. <laughs> no, what? You know? And then in punk rock, there was no real backstage. I mean, if there was backstage, everybody was welcome. The band guys that you like to see, well, they're right there for you to talk to. And then I come into the program, and it's the same thing. Here are these guys that have been sober forever, and you think, oh, my God, they must be like, whoa, look at this special guy. And then you go up and talk to them, and it's like, hey, you know, call me, kid. You want to get a cup of coffee or something? It's like, it's that whole, like, kind of, like, we're all one, walking shoulder to shoulder, side by side. And, you know, that's what I tried to bring into the book, too. It's like, hey, look, man, big deal. I wrote a book. So what? I just happen to be able to write. Yeah. It doesn't make me any different from you. Yeah. I just I just know how to write. So here's my number. Call me. If you're in Huntington Beach, call me. Let's get a cup of coffee. Let's visit. Let's. There is a website for the book, and it's just, you know, www.principleofrecovery.com. But also, you know, my phone number's in it. Hey, <laughs> hey, you got a, You want to talk to me about something? Go ahead. Feel free. Awesome. That is that is the really the way it should be. And uh, I really think, uh, you know, the twelve step movement isn't something that happened back in 1939. It's an ongoing breathing thing where we're in the middle of a story, not looking back at the start of it. And you're a, a great example of uh, how not to reify 
you know, uh, and and in, in essence, uh, kill, you know, a, a perfectly good thing. No, and it's, and and not and yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. And more so than that, how can we grow? Yeah. You know, I wonder sometimes through this fear-based sobriety that's been offered before, you know, they're shutting people down, not letting people think, not letting them experience. I tell people all the time that one of the promises that has not come true, according to most people, is more will be revealed. Yeah, according yeah. to most people, that is not true. Because yeah. we don't need any more. Yeah, we yeah. don't need any different. We don't. And, and looking back at Bill, Bill was so open to a lot of this stuff, so open-minded and searching and seeking and you know, God, I wonder what we've stopped. I tell people all the time, what what have you stopped by you trying to control and guide and structure people when they should be let free? It's like, look, trust the process. Trust this experience. Trust, you know, if you're a God believer, trust God. Trust, you know, trust the development of man's mind and consciousness and let these people go. Let them go, you know, and let's see what happens. Yeah, but that, really that's what differentiates the uh, the trailblazers from the followers. Because uh, the trailblazers would be perfectly happy if someone started cutting a trail a different direction. Bill Wilson wasn't all about Alcoholics Anonymous. He just cared about drunks. He didn't get care if they got sober in AA or some other way, as long as they were getting sober. But the right. I had a guy... Go ahead. You well, had... no, I was going to say, yeah, I had a guy the other day who's kind of calls me every once in a while, and he said that um, another man wanted to talk to him, and that man told him that he needed to ask my permission. I don't know, what are you, wow. what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? What do you mean? <laughs> you as a grown man have to ask my permission? To get information yeah. from another man, information that might save your life, help add to the group, save other people, and you need my permission for that? Yeah. I go, you got to be crazy. And let me tell you something. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing anybody that would say that you need my permission to talk to them probably doesn't have anything you want anyway. But you go right ahead. <laughs> okay. And if they do come up with something good, send it back over here because I can always stand learning too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, there there seems to be, as time goes on, a, a greater and greater uh, yearning for authority to get GSO to tell the groups how to run their meetings and to solve local problems and to, you know, dictate from on high what is, you know, sanctioned and what is forbidden and so on and so forth. But it was never designed that way. No, no, thank God. And I, I can't, you know, I, my sponsor told me something. I have a great mentor, sponsor, whatever. You know, he's coming up on 47 years, and he's just the nicest man. Just a, such a wonderful friend. He's my friend, yeah. you know. And he said something to me one day, and, and he, now he is a hardcore Catholic. Mm -hmm. He says the rosary every night. He's, you know, and he knows how I am. He knows how he is, whatever. And we were talking one day, and he said, Jack, he goes, do you think that God has a hand in you know, these 12-step programs. And, you know, he speaks of God as he does. I speak of God as I do. And mm -hmm. I said, yeah, of course I believe that. I do believe it's guided by this force and this power. He goes, yeah. He goes, Jack, and you know what? When God's had enough of it, when it becomes useless to him, 
they'll wipe his hands and walk away. And, you know, that was really a frightening thought to think that when, if our fear, if our control and our fear be, starts to render the program useless, then what happens to us? Yeah, then we, you uh, know, it, it's, I mean, we talk about the Oxford group as if it couldn't get along without us once we left, they were finished. They still exist. <laughs> yeah, moral rearmament. Yeah. <laughs> I, got a friend who, I got a friend that still goes. Yeah. <laughs> we ought never be complacent. If we're not growing, right. uh, you know, uh, the alternative is unattractive. Frightfully unattractive. <laughs> I got nothing for you, or you can look under my rug. I got no smack for you, nor a chance for that drug. I got no tears for you, I got nothing to worry about. I got no fear for you, no, no, no. My guns are just a layout. That's a little bit of Nothing For You, a song from Revenge from 1986, TSOL. Over the years, it's been known as True Sound of Liberty or the Statute of Limitations. We'll have more TSOL uh, to finish the show off. I've got something from their 2009 album, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Free Downloads. Visit rebelliondogspublishing.com for links to Jack's book, and also for Richard Lett, who's coming right up. So let's do it. This is from the show I got to see at Yuck Yucks in Toronto. From Sober But Never Clean, this is five years. Uh, I recently celebrated five years clean and sober. Ah, ah. I know. Ah, yeah. Thank you. Always nice to get applause for not doing something. What'd you do for the last five years? Nothing! You should be so proud. Yeah, I had to give up the booze and the drugs. I had to go to rehab. Gained a lot of weight in rehab. Figured I'd lose weight in rehab. Let's go for a walk the recovering crackhead because those boys can move. <laughs> Wait up, I'm an alcoholic. Heroin addicts two blocks back. And that's how I met Rob Ford. But anyway... But yeah, five years though. But my friends are tired of it, frankly. All my friends, they go, yeah, that's great. They patted me on the back a lot, and now they're like bored of it. They go like, you know, at five weeks, I went, that's great. Five months, I went, you are an inspiration. Five years ago, shut the fuck up. <laughs> they're tired of it. They don't understand that addiction, it's like a, it's like a daily thing. It's like, it's like if the Leafs won every day. Okay, that's a bad example, but... <laughs> You know where I'm going with this. Five years is not a long time to be sober, but it's a long time to not drink. It's a long time to have feelings and feel them. That's creepy for a guy. What's this salty fluid coming out of my face? It's a long time to piss indoors. They have little rooms for that. Long time with no unexplained injuries. People go, like, what the hell happened to you? Ah, uh, well, I slipped on the ice. They're going, uh, but you have an arrow in you. <laughs> well, there was a scuffle. 
deja vu. I have deja vu all the time now. I go into places and I go, wow, I have this eerie feeling I've been here before. And then the bouncer points out the hole in the wall is mine, and that's my canceled check above the cash register. <laughs> this is not deja vu. This is memory. <laughs> Five years of knowing where your car is. Imagine that. I know where my car is. I used to have to have a system dig and pull out a receipt, go, oh, maybe it's still at the strip club. <laughs> Business card, oh shit, I had that job interview. Hope that went well. <laughs> but eventually, you have to use one of your lifelines. You have to phone a friend, a drunk friend. Go, okay. Aiden, haha, <laughs> good job not losing your phone. Okay, Aiden, do you know where my car is? Blue. You're still in it. Oh, perfect. Okay, do me a solid, Aiden. Look out the window. What do you see? Tim Hortons. Well, that should narrow it down. Three Tim Hortons. Oh, fuck. You're in Hamilton. That's going to require a go train. Five years. Five years. Five years of no good excuses. Um, you know, because I used to be, I'd go, oh man, I was totally wasted. I don't remember what happened. I just wasn't myself. And now it's like, yeah, I was completely sober. Remember everything. Totally meant it. Five years of sober sex. Do you even consider what sober sex might be? Lonely is what it is. I used to get drunk and take advantage of myself. Now I realize I'm not really my type. I saw the movie Theory of Everything. Did you see that? About the famous physicist Stephen Hawking. Very depressing movie. Very depressing. Not because he's disabled, but because he's disabled and he's getting laid. I'm working on a dry spell that could kill a camel over here. This guy's crushing more pussy than Hugh Hefner. <laughs> Filling every black hole in the universe. <laughs> Bumping uglies like they're God particles. And I'm getting nothing. Guy can't even wipe his own ass. Sorry, these women, they come over, they wipe his ass, and then they suck his dick. Why? Because they know it's clean, because they cleaned it. All I'm saying is that he may have had to get over a disability to get laid, but he didn't have to do it sober. That's the inky silence I was looking for. This is Richard Lett, comedian, poet, philosopher, writer, author and performer of the one-man show uh, Sober But Never Clean, and this is Rebellion Dogs Radio. Richard, I had the great uh, pleasure of seeing your one-man show at uh, Yuck Yucks in Toronto. So for people listening outside of uh, the Canadian area, it's a uh, brand of comedy clubs. Correct. It's really grassroots. Most towns have a Yuck Yucks. You mentioned kudos to Mark Breslin for letting you do this show in a bar right. about recovery. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was a packed. This is a game changer for... Mm -hmm for me and, and for the club itself to do a one-man show is different than their usual approach to things. 
but uh, you know, Mark's no dummy. You know, if uh, you know the the majority of the people that were there were at Yuck Yucks, probably for, for the first time. Yeah. Or at least the first time they can remember. Yeah, yeah. You know, so <laughs> they may have been blackout drunk at there at some point in their lives, but um, so to expand his clientele into the world of recovery. And I really use that to promote the show to say this, let's reward this mainstream comedy club for, uh, you know, putting on a show for us and show him that, that we do represent a market that, uh, that can be embraced. And, you know, there's more to entertainment than, you know, selling eyeballs. Right. And you talked a little bit about uh, what's it worth? And, you know, you, I mean, your sobriety comes first. Yes. You're grateful for your sobriety. Yes, certainly. Uh, but you, you are a professional. I mean, we know, you know, the Mark Marins of the world, whether it was Craig Ferguson or uh, Robin Williams, uh, I mean, they all use the sort of recovery angle as part of their show. Yeah, certainly. And, and it goes over well in a mixed crowd. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Because everyone is touched by alcoholism. You shake any family tree, a couple of drunks fall out of it. Yes. No one is... Uh, no, exempt from that, that's for exactly sure. Exactly right. It's just like professionals in addiction and recovery have to treat what they do at the job at the XYZ rehab or XYZ treatment center right. than what they do in their home group in terms of making the coffee and getting involved and working with sponsees. Right, absolutely. I guess all of us as professionals have to sort of find that balancing act between our you know, commitment to per our profession and our special way of being able to contribute back to the recovery Community. Absolutely. I, th I think that, you know, that's one of the levels of, of anonymity that uh, that we focus on is that by leaving our titles at the door um, and we all come in, you know, as equals, it's uh, particularly important for me. Arrogance and entitlement are a couple of defects of character <laughs> of mine. You know, in, when we get together with other addicts, we uh, um, have the temptation to be entertaining but, you know, as the show talks about, stand-up comedy was part and parcel of my addiction. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something that I did to avoid it or something that led me to addiction. It was my addiction. And that, that need to feel good about ourselves by simply by making people laugh. So um, in, in as dangerous. far as uh, comedy was your addiction or stand-up comedy, it was yeah. the sort of immediate gratification, the positive feedback. It was the... Uh, approval of others that oh. was so addictive is that what yeah absolutely yeah. and and just the simple brain chemistry of it all mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know the dopamine and the adrenaline that yeah. you get from doing that performance yeah and then the crash afterwards one of the reasons that entertainers are so likely to you know go to the after party was to just try and keep that that high that we got from performing going yeah the problem is that there's very few drugs or you know drinks that can equal what it feels like to be up there. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are five cameras shooting the show on that Sunday, and one of them climbed up on the stage and was able to film the standing ovation that I got at the end. Yeah. Which I am i haven't seen yet, but I'm, I'm <laughs> grateful that happened so that people could know what that, that, that feels like. And it's a wonderful feeling to see these people, you know, rise and stand and cheer and applaud mm -hmm. for you at the end of the show. But it is also very intoxicating, and it goes away, mm -hmm. you know, like alcohol being a, a not a problem but a solution. Right. It's a short 
long-term solution and getting a standing ovation is also you know extremely gratifying but it it fades right and uh you know and it's interesting that after the show uh, i've done this a few times now i did it in vancouver and calgary and in toronto and it at the end of the show everyone sort of goes away and i end up in some coffee shop with another alcoholic talking program yeah instead of you know going to some after party instead of the after party yeah, yeah that's the uh, recovery after party exactly just to return to that place and know it mm-hmm. as the source of of what this is all about and and not feel like oh you know look at poor me i don't get to you know you know have the big celebration and the you know the beautiful woman and the dance or the uh, accolades what i get is the opportunity to try and help somebody you know uh even when i was uh, young in sobriety and i was very young in age when i was in sobriety so i was looking i wasn't looking for balance and calm and peace i was looking right. to live life to the fullest i could somehow managed to do that sober. So right. if I went off on a weekend road trip with some other AA members, a bunch of running mates, we'd go to an AA conference or convention. Right. We'd be at the first meeting of the day. We'd be at the marathon late at night. We'd be going to the dance. We'd yeah, be yeah. coffee, coffee, coffee. No time for lunch, right? And and you get pretty burnt out after that. Right. And I always found just going... You know, even on the, if you could get home on the Sunday night and just go to a regular Sunday meeting, it was a way of coming down. Because going to work uh, Monday when not everyone is on the buzz of, right. you know, spiritual high, everyone's just back in their rat race mentality, That yeah. that's a, a shock to, to your system to go back to that. And, it, and, and just that regular meeting or that coffee shop with one-on-one AA is just a way to bring you back down to, you know, sort oh, yeah. of that normal and, resting heart rate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank God for that because, um, you know, before it would, you know, you'd be just chasing it, you know, all night and into the next day and needing to, you know, like, uh, like I mentioned in the, the show, chasing the dragon of stand-up. Mm-hmm is as doomed as heroin. Sure. Because, you know, you're just not going to be able to stay up there. We have to allow for, you know, that that calming down process. The ego inflation that happens uh, in performance is really a dangerous thing, and, and we're often quite surprised when people that seem to have it all mm-hmm. die prematurely or you know, take their own lives or suffer from depression. We go like, what could they possibly be depressed about? They've got, you know, all the money in the world and all that kind of stuff. We know that that's not what it's about. You know, that's just uh, the nature of it. I'm on the phone negotiating to do my show at a CA convention. And so all that um, is really what it's about. Even though my ego is going, yeah, well, how much are you actually making? And, you know, of course they gave you a standing ovation. You're preaching to the choir. And, you know, and really diminished what it is that, that I've accomplished. But the interesting thing about these little meetings that we go to where we're not that big of a deal yeah, is that a, a woman yesterday at my noon meeting said to me that her and her father came to see the show. Mm-hmm. And... He uh, sent her a note, and she got all misty as she said. He sent her a note the, the other day telling her that he was proud of her 
for no, and that's all he said. Yeah. And that's what, you know, I get to be part of. Yeah. Is that, you know, a beautiful young woman mm-hmm. who seems like she's got everything going on except, you know, her father's not impressed with what she's been living <laughs> and now he is. Now he is. Just simply because they attended yeah. the show together and you know, she he could see that connection that was going on. So. Yeah, that was her standing ovation. Yes, absolutely. Of, you know, yeah, that's yeah. very that's very well put. And uh, and you know, and, and that's the thing, Joe, is that you know, when when we can share, you know, the experience, the great. You know, Mother Teresa said that the they asked her what the worst disease in the world was, and she said the sense of not belonging. Mm-hmm. So you know, when those people came out to. You know, into that professional comedy club where so many great comedians had performed and got to be part of that and belong in a comedy club mm-hmm. and knowing that one of theirs, you know, was up there on the stage. That goes a long way to helping people. Right. You know, long way. You know, painters have an interesting way of seeing things. Uh, writers, comics, mm-hmm. uh, songwriters have an interesting turn a phrase a way of looking at things right just before this segment we played uh five years where you oh, right talk on. about you know five years in the uh celebration of recovery is yeah, nothing yeah. Yeah, yeah. five years without a drink right that's a long time <laughs> it's a long time yeah <laughs> and can you talk a little bit uh more about you know where where you transition from not drinking Yes. To living sober. Right. Yeah, where, yeah. where you don't even think about drinking. You right. think about problem solving, not problem avoiding. And, right, yeah, you yeah. Know, that kind of thing. And and are you there yet in your recovery? I think so. Um, I know uh, in Vancouver talks about second stage recovery, mm-hmm. um, where we start to give instead of take. There's a period of time, you know, when we're initially getting sober and, and staying sober that, you know, we are really sort of high maintenance and we, you know, really need to be, you know, talking to our sponsor and getting their advice on everything and just getting our way through that. And and then there comes a point where you start to find yourself spending more time with your sponsees than with your sponsor. Yeah. You might check in with your sponsor like every month or so. Yeah. Meanwhile, your sponsees are on the phone with you every day like you used to be with your sponsor. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's an old, the old adage about five years. My sponsor told me that there's a, at five years you hear a popping sound, and that is the sound of your head coming out of your butt. And, uh, <laughs> and I think that uh, as much as I didn't quite understand that, I do now. Where you get to a point where you've gone through the, you know, the, the, you know, sort of pause, the, you know, the long time withdrawal symptoms and, you know, you're finding yourself back into a reasonable living situation and being able to talk with your family and be connected with people and not be, you know, um, looking for short-term solutions for these things and, you know, this whole sort of process. And, and you, you sort of realize at some point going, wow, I really am kind of peaceful about a lot of stuff and it's a it's a nice feeling you know of course you know it doesn't take much to send you you know back into crazy land once you understand that what the point of all this is is to uh 
to help other people. Mm-hmm. When we see people that are flourishing, people that are happy. Mm-hmm. I think I saw it on the TED Talks where this guy did some research. Yeah. And he found that the people that were most happy most of the time were the people that were helping other people. Yeah. It seems counterintuitive in this selfish, ego-driven world where, you know, we're... Told and you know, with all the marketing to consume to get for us what is what's in it for me, sort of thing. But um, there's nothing that supports that. That a fancy car, mm-hmm. you know, or anything like that is where it lies. But being able to help someone somehow that's what um, gives us a sense of of peace. And and so that's to me what happens in about five years. The show "Sober but Never Clean" is a product of that, right? You it, know exactly. Sort of giving it back. You know, I waited a significant amount of time. You know, five years before I really decided that I had the understanding of my own addiction uh, enough that I could share that safely mm-hmm. in, an, in an environment where it would do the greatest amount of good. So, you know, there were over two hundred people that heard the message the other night and some of those people weren't in recovery mm-hmm. some of them probably you know could be and yeah. they, they got to hear that you know others were just sort of uh, allowed to feel that that embrace one of the guys said to me uh, a good friend of mine I call him guitar Tom mm-hmm. and he's uh, he's really got a lot of cool things to say one of my favorite things that he says is um, figure it out is not a slogan um, but uh, Tom said to me that you know when the in when Doctor Jung was trying to help people with alcoholism, and he said that he felt that in in order for people to find any recovery, they needed to have a spiritual experience that would uh, bring about a psychic change. And Tom said to me that he felt like when he saw that show that I was giving those people in the audience a spiritual experience. And then I, you know, and I, I, I was obviously very flattered by that. Mm-hmm. But the idea that that art can can you know inspire this sort of a spiritual experience that brings about that psychic change, where we can you know start to find a meaningful recovery. It's true in the printed word too, in that the greatest truth is in our fiction, hmm. not yeah, in yeah, our yeah. nonfiction. Right? I mean, you can it just. That it's just truer uh, the way the artists uh, portray it, but but our, our whole environment is changing, isn't it? And I think it's great that we can. Uh, I mean, you can find recovery magazines if you find Maxim and uh, you know all of their uh, tits and ass and drinking yeah, yeah, ads, yeah. Uh, little triggering. You can find recovery magazines that talk about eating good food, getting yep. outdoors. Uh, mocktails, you know, what, whatever, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, there are podcasts now, right? You know that uh, you can find recovery online, seven twenty four, and and y- you can get to shows. Whether it's music, there, there's so many artists that are clean and sober now. I mean, it's this whole community of of not just getting sober, but living sober. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know. It's not cool. I joke that sobriety is the new heroin. Um, but, you know, it's kind of corny, kind of, you know, like uh, not cool to be sober. And certainly I went through that uh, 
phase, uh, you know, my one of my sponsees nickname for me is Buzzkill because they come up with these crazy ideas, and I am quick to point out that they're they're being, you know, selfish or greedy or lecherous or all that kind of stuff. They're no man, you know, he's just no fun. But uh, you know, I guess there's a point where you don't care that it's not cool anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and and when and people start to respond to someone that's just being honest and just, you know, being true to themselves and saying what they actually believe. It's amazing how superficial people can seem when they're just all about, you know, who's booking that show and what, what who got into that festival and Academy Awards and all these things that are, just mean nothing, Joe. Mm-hmm. They mean nothing. Mm-hmm. Counter that with going for coffee with, you know, a 25-year-old guy who's, you know, like just doesn't know, you know, how to live in a world that's full of Tinder and, you know, uh, Jagermeister shots and, you know, all the stuff that's going on all around him and how can he, he find any peace because he's got this stupid disease that doesn't allow him to enter into these worlds in any kind of safe way and, and what can he do? And, you know, and then to have coffee with, you know, someone that he sees as kind of like a badass comedian. Yeah. And that badass comedian is talking about um, integrity and, and honor and, and love and and uh, commitment to, uh, you know, a greater good and a, a, a spiritual life, a God of his understanding, all these corny things just going like, wow, this guy, you know, is kind of making this seem kind of cool. I think it was in uh, Winter Shelter about something... Uh a counselor said to you about how you may feel that you're imprisoned here in treatment, but there could be a time when you see your drug using, your drinking life as that was imprisoned. Yeah. And now you're free. What an, what an astute woman yeah. to say that to me. I was mm-hmm. so scared about going into treatment because, mm-hmm. you know, like the talk about treatment centers and there was like 54 guys and half of them were serving out there the end of their prison sentences at mm-hmm. that treatment center. And, you know, you got to keep to yourself. And like, I'm just like, you know, going off to Oz. And, <laughs> and the, the perspective that woman gave me to say, no, no, the addiction is the prison. Mm-hmm. Where you go, you're setting yourself free here, mm-hmm. and and to put it so well, you yeah. will someday see your life before treatment as the prison. That's Richard Lett playing the piano behind us. You can find him at uh, on Twitter, funny for money twenty two. That's funny number four money number twenty two. Uh, if you know him as a slam poet, you would know him as Optimus Rhyme or Richard Glenlet. If you're seeking him out on Facebook, he's one of my friends. You can uh, find him there. Visit RebellionDogsPublishing.com for links to uh, get a hold of Richard or to get a hold of Jack Grisham and his book, A Principle of Recovery. Uh, it's what I would call a great 21st century look. 12-step life. Anyway, we're going out with something from TSOL. This song is The Pain We Go Through from the 2009 album Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Free Downloads. Thanks for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio. Enjoy this tune. We'll see you soon. You know that I love you 
Let's 